Problems in American Democracy, Chapter 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Ross Williamson. Problems are the growing pains of civilization, offering opportunities for personal achievement and pointing the way to national progress. Dedication to my mother, whose name appears in no hall of fame, but whose life is an unbroken record of service to her home and to her country. Preface there is an increasing demand for a textbook which will bring the student into direct contact with the great current issues of American life, and which will afford practical training to those who must soon grapple with the economic, social, and political problems of our own time. It is with the hope of meeting such a demand that this text has been prepared. The plan of the book calls for a word of explanation. It is poor pedagogy to expect the student to attack the defects of American life and at the same time to place in his hands a book which deals predominantly with the mechanism of government. As well, send a boy to a hardware store to buy tools before he is told whether he is to make a mousetrap or a boat. Furthermore, to spend much more time on the mechanism of government than on the actual problems of democracy is a mistake in emphasis. Government is a means, not an end. It is a tool by means of which we attack and solve our problems. Therefore, the student of this text begins, not with the mechanism of government, but with the historical background of American democracy, its origin, development, and promise for the future. Following this is a brief survey of the economic life of the nation, because that economic life constitutes the fundamental basis of our problems. Considerable space has been devoted to a problem growing directly out of our economic conditions, i.e., the question of social justice or industrial reform. This is the most pressing question before any modern people, but strangely enough, one which heretofore has been neglected by our schools. Because they tend to arise primarily from a bad economic situation, such social problems as industrial relations, health and industry, and immigration are next considered. From social problems, the text passes to the economic and social functions of the government, and thence to the question of making government effective. The mechanism of government has been placed last, and for the reason already given, i.e., because a knowledge of the framework of government is valuable only after the citizen knows something of the needs which that mechanism must be made to fill. It has not been easy to compress into a single volume the most important of our national problems. Obviously, a rigid selection has been necessary. In this selection, the aim has been to discuss the more important issues of American life, whether economic, social, or purely political. In dealing with these issues, the attempt has been made to keep in mind the student's previous preparation. On the other hand, the civic demands which the future will make upon him have not been ignored. Some of the problems are difficult, but they are also of vital importance. Very shortly, the student will be confronted in his everyday activities with such puzzling matters as socialism, the control of immigration, and taxation reform. If the school does not prepare him to grapple with these questions intelligently, 
he can only partially fulfill the obligations of citizenship. Throughout the text, the aim has been to go directly to the heart of the problem under consideration. The student is not burdened with a mass of data which would prove confusing, and which would be out of date before he is out of school. Instead, an effort has been made to outline, first, the essential nature of the problem, and second, the fundamental principles which affect its solution. Care has been taken to cultivate the problem attitude and to encourage the spirit of independent investigation and open-minded judgment on the part of the student. It goes without saying that the success of this book will depend largely upon the use which the teacher makes of it. The text aims to supply the basic facts and the fundamental principles involved in specific problems, but the teacher must interpret many of those facts and principles and ought, in addition, to furnish illustrative material. The book is not intended to be an encyclopedia, but rather a suggestive guide. The text covers the fundamentals of three distinct fields, economics, sociology, and government. Sufficient reference and topic work is offered to enable teachers to expand the text along particular lines. Thus, part two might serve as a nucleus around which to build up a special course in economics, while part three would serve as a basis for a similar course in applied sociology if for some reason it were not feasible to take up other parts of the book. Though the text is the result of the cooperative efforts of a considerable number of specialists, its treatment of the problems of American life is neither dogmatic nor arbitrary. The effort has been to treat all of our problems sanely and hopefully, but at the same time to make it clear that many of these questions are still unsettled and the best method of disposing of them is yet hotly debated. This fact has strongly influenced the manner in which the problems have been treated. Problems in American Democracy, Part 1. Foundations in American Democracy, Chapter 1. The Background of American Democracy. 1. The Meaning of National Greatness. We apply the term greatness to nations that have made substantial contributions to civilization. By civilization is meant a well-rounded and highly developed culture, or, to say the same thing in different words, an advanced state of material and social well-being. Civilization is so vast and so many-sided that it may receive contributions in very diverse forms. The invention of the hieroglyphic system of writing is among the leading achievements of ancient Egypt, but the art and literature of Greece have been no less conspicuous in the onward sweep of human progress. The promotion of the science of navigation by the Phoenicians and the development of law and architecture by Rome illustrate a few of the forms in which peoples may confer marked benefits upon the world. The advancement of music and painting by Italy France, and other European nations, and the application and expansion of the idea of parliamentary government by England are further examples of ways in which nations may earn for themselves the title of greatness. 2. The Conditions of National Greatness In order that a nation may become great, i.e., make some distinct contribution to civilizations, two conditions must be fulfilled. The first condition of national greatness is that the land under that nation's control must be encouraging to man's honest, helpful efforts. Footnote. As used in this chapter, the term land is held to include not only such natural resources as soil, minerals, forests, 
and bodies of water, but climate as well. End footnote. The vigorous Scandinavians have made great advances in inhospitable Iceland and Greenland, and the French have reclaimed an important section of Algeria, and the British have worked wonders with some of the barren parts of Australia. Nevertheless, it is with great difficulty that the prosperous communities are developed in lands relatively barren of natural resources or unusually severe in climate. A high and stable civilization has rarely arisen in the tropics, because there the overabundance of nature renders sustained work unnecessary, while the hot, enervating climate tends to destroy initiative and ambition. It is no accident that the greatest nations of modern times are located chiefly within the stimulating temperate zones, where nature is richly endowed, but where, too, her treasures are rarely bestowed upon those who do not struggle consistently for them. The second condition of national greatness is an intelligent and industrious population, willing to abide by the law and devoted to the building of homes. The combination of an unpromising land and an inferior population effectually prevents the rise of a high civilization. And just as the choicest of men can do relatively little in an unfriendly land, so the most promising of countries may be despoiled or temporarily ruined by a slothful or lawless population. From the standpoint of civilization, the best results are obtained when a rural and law-abiding people exercise control over a land rich in natural resources and possessed of a stimulating climate. France and Great Britain in Europe and Canada and the United States and North America are examples of great nations which have been built up in such lands and by such peoples. 3. The Attractiveness of North America it will be interesting to examine North America in the light of the two conditions of national greatness discussed in the preceding section. We may note, first of all, that by far the greater part of the territory now compromising the United States and Canada is distinctly favorable to settlement. This territory lies almost entirely within the temperate zone. It has unattractive spots, but in general it is neither so barren of resources as to discourage the homemaker, nor so tropical in its abundance as to reward him without his putting forth considerable effort. Particularly within the bounds of the United States is a well-balanced national life encouraged by the diversity of soils and the wide variety of climate. Certainly, the continent of North America fulfills the first condition of national greatness, 4. The Coming of the European The discovery of America in 1492 opened a new era in world history. The nations of Western Europe were disappointed when their earlier explorers found the way to Cathay blocked by a new landmass. But the Spanish discovery of treasure in Mexico and South America soon turned disappointment into keen interest. No magic palaces or spice islands were found, but there were revealed two virgin continents inviting colonial expansion on a scale previously unknown. Of the European powers, which at various times laid claim to parts of the New World, Spain, France, Holland, and England occupy significant positions in the background of American democracy. We may briefly notice the influence of each of these four powers upon America. 5. Spain. 
Though the Spanish were the first in the field, the motives of the colonists limited their ultimate success in the land. The earlier Spaniards were missionaries and treasure seekers rather than home builders and artisans. The early discovery of great quantities of gold and silver had the effect of encouraging the continued search for treasure. In this treasure quest, often fruitless, the Spanish practically confined themselves to Mexico and the region to the south. In these areas, they did valuable work in Christianizing and educating the natives, but little industrial progress was made. Except for the missionary work of the Spanish, their earlier colonization was largely transient and engaged in for the purpose of exploitation. 6. France France disputed the claim of Spain to North America soon after the opening of the 16th century. The French attempted to settle in Florida and in South Carolina, but the opposition of the nearby Spanish forced the newcomers to leave. In 1524, Verrazano explored the North Atlantic coast for the French, and ten years later, Cartier sailed up the St. Lawrence and founded the claim of France to that section of the New World. Following the example of Spain, France dispatched missionaries to the New World to convert the Indians. Soldiers and trappers were sent out to develop the valuable fur trade by the establishment of widely separated forts and trading posts. But the French settlers had no popular lawmaking bodies, being completely under the power of the king. Only along the St. Lawrence, where agricultural colonies were planted, did the French really attach themselves to the soil. Elsewhere, there were few French women, and therefore, few normal French homes. And, when in 1763 all of the French possessions east of the Mississippi were ceded to England, it was largely true that the French colonies had not yet taken root in the country. Infinite courage, devotion, and self-sacrifice were ultimately wasted, largely because of the lack of homes, in the absence of self-government, and the failure to develop an industrial basis of colonization. 7. Holland the Dutch became aware of the commercial possibilities of the New World in 1609, when Henry Hudson discovered the river which bears his name. Trading posts were soon established in the neighborhood, and in 1621 the West India Company was given full authority to plant colonies in New Netherland. A brisk trade in furs developed, but though the company grew rich, the colonists were not satisfied. The agriculturists along the Hudson had the benefit of a fertile soil and a genial climate, but they operated their farms under a feudal land system which allowed an overlord to take most of their surplus produce. Moreover, the Dutch governors were autocratic, and the settlers had little voice in the government of the colony. Loyalty to Holland waned as the Dutch saw their English neighbors thriving under less restrictive laws and a more generous land system, so that when, in 1664, the colony passed into the possession of the English, the majority of the settlers welcomed the change. 8. England The Spanish had been in the New World a century before the English made any appreciable impression upon the continent of North America. In 1583, Sir Humphrey Gilbert had made an unsuccessful attempt to found a colony on the coast of Newfoundland, and a few years later, Sir Walter Raleigh's venture at Roanoke Island proved equally disastrous. Colonization was retarded until 1588, 
in which year England's defeat of the Spanish Armada destroyed the sea power of her most formidable rival. The English may be said to have made serious and consistent attempts at colonization only after this event. Like France, England desired to set herself up as a successful colonizing rival of Spain. Impelled by this motive, the earlier English adventurers sought treasure rather than homes. But the high hopes of the early English joint stock companies were not justified. Those who had looked to America for treasure were disappointed. No gold was forthcoming, and such groups as the Jamestown settlers of 1607 very nearly perished before they learned that America's treasure house could be unlocked only by hard work. In spite of heavy investments and repeated attempts at colonization, these first ventures were largely failures. 9. The Coming of the Homemaker It may truly be said that the seeds of national greatness were not planted in America until homemaking succeeded exploitation by governments and joint stock companies. Homemaking received little or no encouragement in the early Spanish, French, and Dutch colonies. Almost from the first, England allowed her colonies a large measure of self-government, but it is significant that these colonies made little progress so long as they were dominated by joint stock companies intent upon exploitation. It was only when individuals and groups of individuals settled independently of the companies that the colonies began to thrive. The first really tenacious settlers on the Atlantic seaboard were groups of families who were willing to brave the dangers of an unknown land for the sake of religious freedom, economic independence, and a large share of self-government. It was with the coming of these people that our second condition of national greatness was fulfilled. 10. Growth of the English Colonies The English annexation of New Netherland in 1664 and the concessions of the French in 1763 left the English in undisputed possession of the greater part of the Atlantic seaboard. The English colonies in this area grew with astonishing rapidity. Cheap land, religious freedom, and the privilege of self-government attracted settlers from all parts of northern Europe. At the close of the 17th century, there were 260,000 English subjects in North America. In 1750, there were approximately 1 million, and in 1775, there were probably 3 million. Although in most sections the dominant element was of English extraction, other nationalities contributed to the population. Along the Delaware, Swedes were interspersed with the English, while in Pennsylvania, there were large groups of Germans. Numerous Dutch settlers had continued to live along the Hudson after New Netherland had passed into English hands. Some of the most frugal and industrious of the settlers of Georgia and South Carolina were French Huguenots, while along the seaboard and inland the Scotch-Irish were found scatteringly in agriculture and trade. Such was the composition of the people who were destined to begin an unexampled experiment in democracy, an experiment upon the successful termination of which rests our chief claim to national greatness. End of chapter 1